You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I can't stress how much knowing people is is like the main motivator. It's really what opens the door. Mm-hmm. Because if you send your like CD in or whatever it is, your link or Dropbox, it's just going to sit there. It, it's it just it is. So somebody has to champion you, and that's the difficult part. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. You're listening to 2020, and I'm here with Corey and Siobhan. And this week we have back for, I don't know, is this the sixth time or something? Because he's just incredibly, insanely interesting. One of my favorite guys, if you don't know about him, he's uh, literally, he was there for Hendrix. He was there for Cream. He was there for Led Zeppelin. He was on the road with Megadeth in the trenches with everyone down to Bette Midler. Because he's the coolest dude, and I, I will argue in the music industry, he's like his the, name's uh, the Steve. For, he's like the Forrest Gump of the music industry. Like his every every yeah. major every major event in the music industry has Steve Wood behind it, except yeah. smarter. <laughs> but anyway, to introduce our guest once again, Steve Wood. We got into a lot of cool talk about yeah, more touring. We a lot about Marty Friedman, one of our Lost Symphony friends. Um, so many different topics we covered. He's a manager. Team. He manages stuff. Now, now he's apparently managing a tour with Marty Friedman. You'll just have to listen. But holy crap, this guy is! I just, I love. Just, I want yeah, to drink his, yeah. his non, stuff for non-stop coffee, breakfast. Nonstop information, cool stories, everything that. like that. Stay tuned. Check it out. Part two with Steve Wood. Twenty twenty. Subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode Go. of 2020. Don't Go. forget to like and subscribe at 2020-d.com. No, I'm getting there. Ben, do not interrupt me. You have all episode to do that. We have back for part two the amazing Steve Wood with all the incredible stories of Shelter Music Group just running an empire across the globe of all the artists, the all the amazing people that you want to hear about, that you read about, that you see on TV, that you listen to. He has all of the stories and all the scoop. We're very excited to come back for part two and hear even more about what you have to say about what's going on in the world of Steve Wood. Oh! <laughs> oh. Uh, Give all, me shelter! Thank you. thank you for having me on. It, it really means a lot. And, um, you know, I... I, I need some I need to talk about a lot of the things that I do because you know I need an outlet and it's wonderful yeah. <laughs> that you want to hear it you know we're happy to be your outlet it's it's amazing yeah. to hear all the things that go on behind the scenes in your world and yeah we we well, sort of uncorked a lot in episode one and I can't wait to sort of dive further in in this right. episode. And at, at the end yeah. of episode one we just started talking about uh right. Rick Beato uh so Steve you want to yeah. talk about how you connected with him sure well he, he connected with me um, I was just sitting here one day and, and I can't remember if it was a, a phone or an email, but it was him. And he said, look, you don't know me. And I said, actually, I hate to correct you, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> and I, I love your show, you know. And so we got talking about that. And he said, look, I'm in Atlanta. I see these guys in bands. How do you break a band in this day and age? Because it's not like it used to be. It used to be if you were good, the record company would sign you and then they would give you tour support and you go out and play and, and hopefully it works. Well, now it's not like that. So he was asking me what I should do. If it was me, what would I do? So I told him and um, we just kept in touch as a result of that. So now... I know what you want me to do regarding Les Paul, and I would only be too happy. Well, to let's fill in everybody up. listening. So Steve has become like 
serendipitously intertwined in what we're doing a Les Paul documentary, which we've uh, the first episode. Yes. So it's called The House of Les Paul. But our guests who we're actually having on next, the mayor of Mawa, New Jersey, Mr. Jimmy Wysocki, was Les Paul's. Isn't confidant. it the house that Les built or something like that? Was he that? doesn't know the name of his own documentary. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> he has people for that. <laughs> Whatever. Well, he actually did build a house for my buddy, Jimmy Wysocki, the mayor of Mawa, New Jersey. And I'll, so here's the thing. He was Les Paul's confidant for 28 years. So Les Paul obviously was like a huge musician. Uh, he had secrets like Leonardo da Vinci style as far as he was an incredible inventor. And he knew all kinds of crazy stuff as far as sound on sound recording, as far as tw- tweaking microphones, sounds. He, he was the first guy to speed up his guitar to double speed and then uh, to change the pitch. And all these crazy firsts were, were, were Les Paul. And Jimmy was the guy he told a lot of these things to because when he met Jimmy, Jimmy was a blue collar guy. Um, he'll tell us his story next week, so you'll just have to check in uh, with Jimmy the mayor. But all of this stuff happened and Les told this guy. He he gave him all this information. So even though he wrote a biography, even though he did all these interviews, there were so many secrets that he kept. He told this guy and he gave him all of his stuff. And by all this stuff, I mean like literally he died in his 90s for years was slowly giving my buddy Jimmy, the mayor of Mawa, New Jersey, the, the place that Les lived for for decades of his life, his first tape machine, a bunch of his guitars, all of his manuscripts. He even, we can get into it next week, but he even had a whole dumpster at his house and said, Jimmy, get rid of all this stuff. And Jimmy took everything out because it was every piece of information and Jimmy still has this stuff. So when I found this out, I said, I have to make a documentary about this because Les Paul is one of the most interesting people, not just as a musician, but as far as a scientist, uh, as inventor, a pioneer, inventor. like the he changed yeah. the way production was done, engineering was done. Um, so Steve has been kind enough to help me with this project. In fact, we've been going back and forth. I just saw him in California about Joe Perry who's coming to town, which by the way, to add to the serendipity of this, I'll say this to you now, Steve, two years ago, I was in our friend Ernie Bach's house with our friend Gary Sharon, and you'll know where this is going. Gary Sharon said to me when I asked him, when are you gonna release the new Extreme record? Because Corey and I heard it on this show, Nuno played it for us. It's incredible. Yeah, not on the show. After the show. But after yeah. the show. <laughs> the, uh, the after show party. But yeah, go I mean, watch every- the Nuno episode anyways. It's still good. It's amazing. But he goes, I don't know. But what I can tell you is if Aerosmith doesn't make it to Vegas, which they didn't, right? I'm playing with Joe Perry. Don't tell anyone. I didn't tell anybody. I then tried to nail your partner, Paul, down and said, get me Joe Perry. Benny, he's going to be moving around. He's going to be in Vegas. We can't get him here. I go to Ernie's house. And the day that I go, Steven Tyler goes into rehab and I find out Gary Sharon's back on deck and then you call me only a few days later to tell me Joe Perry's now back with Gary and they're even going to Brazil and playing with ZZ Top here in Boston. So if that's not the star, and and by the way, Gary Sharon was in the room for episode two. He's in episode two that you, Mm -hmm. it's not released yet, but uh, you'll have a cut of it. Um, He was there. So, Paul Geary, your partner, was there. Gary Sharon was there. We're talking about Joe Perry, and no one could nail him down. And now he's going to be in town because of you. And we just went and met with you in California about other things. And it just worked out because I was back in California supporting Carol Kay. And it's crazy. Oh, there's more. more. Yeah. It just so happens that I'll be talking to my good friend, the Reverend Billy... ZZ Top. The well, 22nd I mean, in Boston at the Pavilion, they're playing yeah. together. That's and right. Steve, tell me if you, if you could... I'm going to take the video. Tell me if you could see this happening. Joe Perry and Billy Gibbons each coming out with a Les Paul, Les Paul. Because I know, if I know anything about Billy Gibbons, other than he plays very light guitars that are like three pounds, 
He is one of the greatest yeah. guitar collectors of all time, and he brings yeah. millions of dollars. Not as bad as Rick Nielsen, who scares me, but millions of dollars worth of guitars on tour with him. So if you say, hey, why don't you play this seven-figure Les Paul? I'll be like, sure, and throw it into his rack, just like Joe Perry. Because those guys, they play a different guitar every freaking song. So I could see yeah. them in Boston representing our friend Les. Their influence, because even though those guys are on the older side, Les was the inventor. He started it. So I could see them on stage playing those guitars. So if you want to know my opinion, I think we should make that happen and manifest it. I'm going to be in the Boston area for four days while we rehearse uh, at Aerosmith Studio. And um, I'm going to then set the scene with Joe. And then that'll be a preparation for Billy, how I lay it out to him. But Billy and ZZ Top are managed by the same company I'm part of. So it all it all lines up, you know? Well, Jimmy, I who's mean, coming on next week on the show, Jimmy the Mayor, yeah. he is incred- incredibly nice. In fact... On episode two, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin mm-hmm. it for you for the people, but you can go watch it. He gives a Django Reinhardt pick that was given backstage in 1945 to Les Paul with his own name on it from Django, the Gypsy Jazz uh, guitar player. That for people that don't know, died in 1950. There's very very little about him. Only played with a few with with two yeah. fingers, I believe. Yeah. And two. There's very 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 few videos of him. He's like a, he's like a Robert Johnson in that he's shrouded in mystery. Gave a Django Reinhardt pick to Barry Goudreau at our friend Ernie's house because he's a psycho and just like I'll just give it to Barry. Barry will know what to do with it. Uh, if Joe and the Reverend Billy Gibbons and you already know Jimmy is going to also be crazy in your presence because his whole thing is he believes that all of Les's stuff is supposed to continue to bring smiles to people's faces. So I can't yeah. imagine that if I if you don't get these guys in a room that he just won't make it like Oprah. Just saying, because we're going to have cameras running and for me, I'm just going to sit back in total jealousy. Actually, if you watch Barry Goudreau getting this Django Reinhardt pick, you could see me literally turning green. I get so ups- I get literally upset. My nose starts flaring, and, I'm, and I walk up to him, and I actually say to him, "Like, tell me it's not like Christmas morning." Uh, but I'm actually angry. I'm getting aggressive with Barry Goudreau of Boston because I was so upset that that Jimmy would give him a Django Reinhardt pick in front of me because I was so jealous. If that tells you anything, it does. It does. <laughs> well, I'm excited about this, guys, because. There's, the, the, if the stars align, there's two big ones right there, Billy and Joe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if I can pull this off? I'm going to try oh. really hard. Well, it seems like I, you are the ultimate curator of all things and not to gloss over well, everything that we've yeah. just talked about. But but I'm, I'm curious, you referenced like when we started the episode you know, you got a call saying, how do you break a band? And if I can change yeah. courses here, I think that we kind of skipped over that and you apparently have the answer. So can you talk a little bit about what you said? Um, I think you said Rick Beato called you and you, it said, how do you break hey. a band? Let's go back to that. Yeah. Sorry, Ben, I changed the, oh, the conversation. No, that's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and play Les Paul's prototype guitar yeah. that you could see on the neuroticguitars.com. Yeah, but don't actually don't play mind it. Us. Yeah, don't mind us. We're just chatting. Um, well, what I told him was, you know, it's things have changed. It's not like it used to be. And I told him that you're going to need social media. You have to have some access to to all the social media, whether it be TikTok, um, YouTube, uh, Facebook, you've definitely got to have that. And you also have to have somebody that knows how to place the music with people that can move the needle. And therefore, you have to know people. You really do. I can't stress how much knowing people is is like the main motivator. It's really what opens the door. Mm-hmm. Because if you send your like CD in or whatever it is, your link or Dropbox, it's just gonna sit there. It's it just it is so somebody has to champion you, and that's the difficult part. Because well, you know, if you send if a CD, here's what's going to happen: you're going to get a 19 year old working at the company, and they're like, "Wait, how do I put the CD into my phone?" Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, but, but uh, or my car. 
But look, so you have to know somebody and then because you know them, they're going to hear you out. They're going to listen. They're going to give you your day in court. God knows how you do it without that. I mean, it's really difficult. So it, I told Rick, look, whatever you want, send it to me and tell me what you're trying to achieve, where you see this going. And I would be happy to take it to the A&R department of whatever company we may be talking about. In, in many cases, it's any A&R department, you know. Um, so that's how it starts. That's exactly how it starts. And then you need an agent. You're going to have to play, I think, because people want to see that you can deliver, you know, if it's a rock band, let's say. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a alternative band, if it's a band, then you are going to have to show you can play. And once you get all that, then you need a manager. And the manager is key because he knows all the doors to open. And then you need a publicist because he can spread the word. And again, you have to know these people. And if you don't know them, you're really going to have a hard time. I, I don't know how how to help you. If you, I mean, if you say, look, I've got a band and you don't know anybody, it's like, hey, how do you get in the music business? I don't know. I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> and in my case, it feels like, it, I mean, it feels it was, like now I, being in a successful band is like curing cancer. Because it sounds to me like you have to, first off, bass players, most of the bass players I know don't even know like what PR stands for. Nevertheless, has a PR agent friend. Like the amount of friends, it just sounds like there's <laughs> a lot of nepotism. The, uh, well, except Ron. This is why Star Set is set aside because Ron not only knows people, he can fix buses. He <laughs> understands uh, <laughs> operations and logistics. And that's what it sounds like you need to do now is like it, instead, of, it, instead of instead of having to know how to play Eruption by Van Halen as a guitarist, you should have a, a million TikTok followers. And if you have that, then you can play guitar in the band. Well, yeah, but there's a, there's a thing here. There is a somewhat of a, um, I think, a troubling aspect to all this. And I don't know if you agree, but I don't believe that today's youth have the attention span to actually listen to music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I it's come that. down to TikTok, which is like 30 seconds. At most, and, and a lot of them are even faster than that. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can't plead your case in that time, it's kind of tough. I mean, it, it's like, look, I'm older, but when I was young, you went around to people's houses to listen to albums. It was a thing. You listened to music. Uh, now, let's just ask the question. How do people listen to music today? How do they? What, what do you think they do? I'm not, I, I it's, don't know. I'm it's a lot. It's a lot. So I, I learned this uh, when I was teaching guitar lessons, uh, mostly, you know, teaching younger kids. And I would ask them, yeah. you know, first question I would ask them, like, oh, like, are there any songs? You know, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite band? Yeah. Like, and they'd go, I don't have a favorite band. I don't really listen oh. to music. Right. And I go, why are you taking guitar lessons? <laughs> but that's irrelevant. But they would tell me that they would hear music in the background of like a, a streamer like say, someone streaming music. like bed music like, like or like in the or like on a tiktok video so they would know like clips of songs but they would never know like who it was or like the name yeah. of the song there was oh, I, I liked the song in the in that youtube video but have I no idea what it is because it's, of Godsmack. yeah <laughs> no i'm serious because there's people i didn't join the army but yeah, there's people yeah. there's a guy i talked yeah. to and he was like oh aren't they like the, the army band or it was maybe it's a navy it's they were, navy, did the navy thing navy about. yeah the Navy yeah, thing. But, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where it's like, again, you have to live under a rock not to know Godsmack because they're literally the, the soundtrack to the Navy. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's true. Listening to music is becoming sort of a dying art form. I, I disagree. Mean, I'm going to tell you why, because I think, okay, so just like bell bottoms weren't cool in the 80s, but they came back. Just like metal was cool back. in the 2000s or, or in the 90s or whatever, it became uncool, but it came back. 
Just like vinyl. So <laughs> vinyl vinyl has surpassed CD sales. I think what's going to end up happening is people have such a tor- uh, short attention spans. I've yeah. seen, and, 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 and I, I bet you there's going to be a whole group of children that start unplugging. I think they'll start going back and be like, wait a minute. So people used to listen to these cylindrical things and they would just turn until it was over and then you would turn it over and actually do it. And I think that they're going to go back and start understanding that magic. And I also think that with buying vinyl for the posterity uh, posterity of the whole thing, um, some of them have actually learned what it's like to listen to a side A and a side B. And I, I actually But here's the thing. I Who's buying faith. vinyl? I don't think it's young kids. It's it's no. older people that are going older for the- Older people who don't have their LPs anymore. Yeah. They got rid like, of them and want them back like as I just, just from and you know my maybe Siobhan because of the the crowds at Starset you have a little bit of an insight obviously Starset fans fucking love Starset so but mm-hmm. I, so I don't know if it translates to the general love of music but in my experience okay, I, I don't see the uh, I go ahead Ben it says consumers in the age bracket 25 <laughs> to 34 were just as likely as those age 55 and older to buy vinyl records in the United States with 21% of those in both age groups having purchased at least one record in 2019. Where is this data coming from? Obviously, Google <laughs> lying to me. But even that, 25 to 34, like, you know, that's... It's still... Those are people that still may have, like, had, their parents may have had a turntable in their house when they were growing up a little bit. Um, I I don't know if it's, like, the this thing that's going to okay. reawaken the music IAA industry data shows that 18 to 35 year olds accounted for 45 percent of u.s vinyl sales so that's 18 but i wonder if they're listening because there is a sort of the hip aspect of i'm going to buy a vinyl i'm going to have a record player and i'm going to have a vinyl collection oh, yeah but i don't know that people are really sitting and having like music i mean i remember even in college we would go and have like music listening parties too but i was in music school even yeah, okay. in my our generation it was kind i'm wondering, of waiting, if, I'm wondering if these 18 year olds just have no idea what a record is like oh that looks cool i'm gonna put that on my wall you know i just get that thing <laughs> they have oh, no yeah. idea it plays I, music. I would believe it <laughs> I believe that. I believe it. I think a lot of it has to do with people buying the signed editions of things yeah. and they buy it for the card inside signed by Lana Del Rey or, or the weird vinyl. But I think that there's a I think that with anything we, we, we give we don't give credit to the younger kids. And I live with a 17 year old who's way smarter than me and she always knows more than I do. And as much as you know, she doesn't know bands. She knows songs. I say this all the time. She knows Careless Whisper by George Michael, but doesn't know, you know, Faith because that's not the one that was on her Spotify list or what has have you. But I think that, you know, kids are going to go back and they're going to start discovering this stuff because listen, if you listen to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon from start to finish, it's a mind-fucking-blowing experience. And it's just like taking that first hit of acid or smoking weed for the first time. Some kid's going to happen upon his dad's fucking vinyl of Dark Side of the Moon and go, holy shit, and tell all of his friends. And I firmly believe that, that will, there will be a resurgence of that because just like anything where it dies, it won't die completely, and then somebody will be a contrarian and be like, oh, I listen to everything. It's 50th anniversary of that album is coming up right now. Is it still on the charts? I bet it is. Probably. <laughs> 50 years. I mean, it's wow. crazy, right? Yeah. 50 years. I actually um, saw them perform it live in London at the Rainbow Theatre. And um, I was very fortunate, living in London in those days, you saw everybody. I mean, just everybody. Led Zeppelin, 10 years after, Jethro Tull, Pink Floyd, you name it. We saw it. And I'll never forget, in the Rainbow Theatre in London, Pink Floyd had rigged up a Spitfire plane, which is a Second World War British fighter plane. And it was on on pulleys. And during, like, there's a part in Dark Side of the Moon where there's all this explosion going on. And this, this plane flew over the audience into the back of the stage, and there was a massive explosion. We'd never seen anything like that at a rock concert. Incredible. I mean, and in those days, you could play a whole album to an audience that hadn't been released yet, you know? I mean, I don't know if you do that today. But well, 
Funny story that you say that because one of my favorite stories that Paul McCartney regurgitates on every single tour, but it never gets old for me, is that like on uh, like a Monday, he played uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club for Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And then it was oh, it Wednesdays right. when they used to release uh, records. And then like on Wednesday or Thursday, the day afterwards, he was playing it live before they were and yeah. debuting their in, music. Uh, yep. Little more, a little bit of trivia. Number one, that was on Shaftesbury Avenue in the Savile Theatre, which was owned by Brian Epstein. Oh. And all of the Beatles were in attendance for that concert. And they were blown away. It had been out like two days, like you say. And, and he did another thing about Jimi Hendrix. I got to tell you this one. There was a, a singer called Lulu. I don't know if you've ever heard her, but... Um, she was married to uh, Morris Gibb at one point from the Bee Gees, right? She um, had a TV show and Jimi Hendrix was the guest. And that day, Cream disbanded, okay? And her show was live. And Jimi Hendrix was there to do Hey Joe, because that was his single. And he started to play it's live TV and you can find it on YouTube. It's there. And he starts playing this. about like eight bars. And he says, you know, I'm fed up with this shit. <laughs> this is for cream. And then he went into sunshine of your love. All right. Right there. And, and, like it was crazy. Nobody knew what to do. He overran live TV. There's the BBC. I mean, they're still talking about that. And if you want to check it out, Jimi Hendrix doing Cream on the Lulu show. Amazing. Amazing. It's the best Cream ever sounded. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh-huh. listen, I, 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 love, I love Cream, but Hendri- Hendrix is one of those guys that he did all the covers, but he did the covers better. So like Bob Dylan wrote the song. All on the Watchtower. Yeah, all on the Watchtower. But then uh, Hendrix plays it. Just well, but Bob Dylan actually Bob Dylan's the perfect example of the guy that that literally none of his music appeals to me. But then he wrote music for everybody else and it was incredible. It's like blowing in the wind. Wait, Bette Midler won a Grammy for that? Holy yeah, crap, yeah. that was him. Like every single song he wrote is like a hit, but it's just for somebody else. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, the birds. His version's you know, Bob Dylan's painful. To listen to it. Hey, Mr. Tamarine, <laughs> man. A little tam- he's got a mouth organ up here. And, no, uh, the birds with that 12-string Rickenbacker, wonderful, wonderful, you know? So, but um, actually, I got to admit, I'm starting to get into Bob Dylan. I'm trying. I'm going back. And uh, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I'm rediscovering music again in play- people I'd forgotten about. I'm going back and listening to it. I don't. Know if I did that when I got a dog. I, I I I walk my dog and then I go and listen to like Rainbow Rising. It was was what I was listening to today. Some Cozy Powell and some Dia yeah. with some Blackmore and yeah. uh, the dude uh, Jimmy Bain from Thin Lizzy. And I, yeah, amazing. And I'm like, oh, I, I feel like I'm learning things. But the, really, all I'm doing is going back to when I was 20 years old, going through the record bins, except now on my MP3s. But you hear different things. Even me, like as I've gone from classical music to more produced music and rock and learning about audio stuff. I mean, I go back and listen to stuff and it sounds completely different to me because I'm hearing different things, you know? I got to ask you something. I've watched you a lot on on, like on the Lost Symphony videos, right? At what point did you like realize that you had gone beyond just like playing to the what you play there which is phenomenal how did how did that happen i mean how did you <laughs> probably an accident <laughs> well no but you I mean you're obviously you're brilliant at it how, oh, i mean thank you you seriously are i mean w- did it just come quite naturally and quickly that that like i like, mean i i always loved classical music but i i didn't ever like the culture of it and i think i always gravitated towards I don't know, wanting to be edgy with stuff. And so I think I just fell sort of accidentally into things that felt comfortable. And I, I'm still... When did you realize you were better than Heifetz? 
<laughs> I'm but not. You no. Improvise. You improvise. And those solos you've done. I mean, you've walked them out, right? There's there's no. Yeah. That you well, ben, I mean, Ben and Corey helped me a lot. I mean, they they can attest to it. It's I had to really grow out of my comfort zone because it is not comfortable for a classical player to go into this improvising. Is, this is a brilliant thing that you just said, Steve, because one of my favorite achievements in the studio was getting Siobhan to think autonomously for herself because she's so used to verbatim being an exorcist with their hands. Like, you want to hear Chopin? And she makes it sound exactly like it because everything from the pianissimo mark to the the slurs to all that stuff tells you exactly what they want to play. So regimented that when you say, do something on your own, yeah, you let the dog She's like, yeah. you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. So to quiet her mind and have her write stuff, like the, the newest Lost Symphony song, which is not out yet, is the greatest collaboration between Javon and I because what I did was I wrote all the the themes. I, I wrote it like the, the Who's Overture, where it's like almost like a whole record of themes. And I wrote pulsing piano stuff and sent it to her. She goes, oh, the song's written. No, I did nothing as far as arrangement. And then I, I, because I gave her basic, basically an outline to color in, she completely rewrote the song, redid everything. She's like, I just kind of wrote, you know, around your stuff. But what she really did was she was like a horse that ran through the fields of her own mind. But because I basically put a fence off in the distance, she didn't feel yeah. like she was going to fall off the planet. Yeah. Does that's that make sense? Good, that's a yeah, pretty good analogy. Yeah. I mean, I got another question. I mean, I, I watched your all your videos. How difficult is it? And, and Corey, you're in this too. When you do yes. those remote videos and you're all in five different rooms, how how? Oh, how Corey, does that come you should together? answer this. That's more. Yeah, it's a so, Corey question, probably. Um. Well, first of all. Uh, Thank you for those aren't, those that. are those are not live, so they're they're every, everyone is is kind of doing their own thing and and then sending it in and then I'm just syncing it up. Uh, so it's it's you know it's not that difficult. It, you know we kind of developed a system for it because we had to do a lot of videos like that. Um, so once once it's recorded, it's more just you know here's your part, you know, film yourself playing it. And then we'll but let me tell you together. what is difficult when Marty Friedman sends you something that is not on a, a steady grid with no <laughs> click track and no steady tempo and says program MIDI and yes. then record violin oh. parts from Japan. Oh, you should tell <laughs> that him the story. So, so you because this is good. This is good bus material for Marty Friedman. So let me set this up, Steve. All right. So when Marty Friedman first agreed to do this song Requiem, I was in Florida uh, for my birthday hanging out with Siobhan. And I'm like, oh my God, greatest birthday present ever. We get Marty Friedman. Send Marty the song, it's all wrong. <laughs> it is? Yeah. Let me do something for you. <laughs> he writes a theme that has nothing to do with the song. <laughs> at all, literally. But he's like, okay. And it's not to a grid, because he just plays it naturally, because he has such good feel that he can make something that sounds like not in time, in time. Even which though it's I not enjoy, really, just remotely which is great, is very has, hard. But it's very hard when you're in Japan, over here, and then Siobhan and I are in Miami. So me being uninformed, not realizing that he's a Sex Pistols, Ramones, like simple is the way, not musically trained, listens to Elvis more than he listened to Chopin. I'm like, Siobhan, Marty Friedman's a goddamn scientist. I want you to go really highbrow with this and, and you know, come up with some Brahms kind of, you know, counter melodies and some Dvork here. Like, she's like, okay. She writes this incredible, incredibly complex harmony. Now, meanwhile, Marty Friedman had sent reference tracks of where he thought it could go. This is where the Cartesian thought, they say, the illusion of free will, where you think... You could do whatever you want, but really, what Marty wants is exactly the three notes he sends for every single chord. So when she sent him what I asked her to do, which is come up the this highbrow Berkeley School of Music, no one's gonna fuck with us, they're gonna think you're a genius. And pretty much he was like, this is literally all wrong. <laughs> and that, that was the start, that was the start of maybe about 200 emails 
between all the side emails between me and Marty, some side emails from Siobhan. Scott was involved in this, but I felt like I was a 17th century philosopher writing to other philosophers about music. And that poor Siobhan was in the Iron Maiden slowly asphyxiating. (laughs) Yeah, it was was inception levels of passive aggressive. Yeah, the song the song is called Requiem uh, by Lost Symphony for those listening, and uh, and uh, you can check that out. We'll put a link in the description as well. And so, so fun fact for you, Steve, if you listen yeah. to the beginning of the the piece, that's Marty's version that I redid according to his rules, and then the very end is actually my original accompaniment oh. to his guitar theme. So it's an if, intro that'll outro. Give you- yeah, so, so we didn't we didn't, we didn't want to throw away that work because it was beautiful. So yeah. we were like, we're gonna, we're gonna cap off the end of it. <laughs> so this is how Marty passively aggressively helped us. He took our song, said it was all wrong, refused to work on it, started at the beginning, <laughs> hated what Siobhan did. I said, you know what, Siobhan, I love this so much. I'm putting it to the end of the song, which is why the song's eleven fucking minutes long. But in the middle of the song, we had a solo from our late friend Ollie Herbert, who we lost. And I said, listen, we got to bring this together somehow, Marty. So Marty cut it up and made it all mortified. So it is actually Marty in the middle of the song. But if you what do listen beginning? to the We be- made the beginning work. The beginning was what he wanted. It's amazing. So we, it's amazing. But if you listen to it, it's Marty, Marty's concept at the very beginning. But if you listen to it, it's like, I, I use Amadeus. If you like, you take a theme. It's like if Mozart walked in and took a theme and then completely changed it. That's what Siobhan did. And that's exactly how Siobhan writes with me. I'll send her stuff like Marty, but in, instead of having the illusion of free will, I say literally make it better because I trust you so much that everything you do, I will write your, ride your coattails because I'm assuming it makes me look smarter. That's the difference. Oh, I don't know about you guys. I think Marty is on a whole nother level as, as a musician. I mean, agree? Insane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, he is definitely a pioneer and I mean I respect him a lot it was it, it was just an interesting we come from such different ends of the spectrum you know Indeed. that it was it was it was funny to come together and figure out how You're that works him in the spectrum? middle <laughs> you know I, I I don't know if you know this about Martin do you look at his Facebook posts I follow oh, him on yes. Instagram yeah I see what he shares sometimes well he the biggest thing in Marty's life is Elvis Presley are yes. you aware of that Yes, no, David Ellison referenced it, but I did Hold not on. know that. I was that. gonna say David Ellison, just so you know, David Ellison's mom caught a scarf at one of Elvis's concerts. Really? And she, and she knew that Marty was in love with Elvis, and she had in her will left Elvis's scarf, David Ellison's uh grandmother, to Marty, except for the fact yeah. that apparently they couldn't find it. Um but oh. she knew even David Ellison's grandmother knew that Marty was obsessed with Elvis. Well, in the post that he he went and saw the movie and my son zach said it was phenomenal i'm going to see it in a few days have you seen it yet guys no, yeah. i've been not. i've been hearing the same thing i want to i have to see it i hear it's off the chain here you know anyway so marty saw it he saw it had an advanced copy and he wrote like like this much i saw it. text in facebook uh, about it and in it he tells them that he's not a religious guy, but the nearest thing he's ever come to having a religious experience was watching that film about Elvis. And he says he has 1,100 Elvis albums, basically every album that he's ever released and every country where that album has been released in. Where does he have room in that apartment in Japan to hold all these 1,100 albums? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Seriously, 1,100. You should read that thing. He says he uh, actually cried during the film because it affected him so much. And he says there's no point in anyone ever doing anything else about Elvis since that came out. They're all wasting their time. And um, I got to tell you, the, the commercials for it look great. I got to tell you, that kid, Austin Butler, I don't know. Have you seen it, Shimon? No, Is no, it? I haven't. I've seen the ads for it, and oh. I, would, I would love to see well, it. Well, listen, Absolutely. we know, I can tell you right now, it has to be the best movie ever, because if there's anything I've learned about Marty Friedman, that if he's not a part of it, he can't even acknowledge its talent or it's like, what was his quote for Lost Symphony, Corey? 
Oh, oh it was beautiful. It was like uh, th- these guys like really too like obsessed gu- with guitar. Yeah, like they really, you know, are passionate about guitar or something. It was ah oh, man, I gotta find it. But uh, yeah, he gave us he gave us an amazing quote about the project that that it it sounded really like a compliment but the more you read it the more like like diplomatic it was a little it, it bit was, of a veiled insult yeah, it was, it was like, british are good at that by the yeah. way you, 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 you walk away but the point of what i'm saying is is that if marty wasn't a part of it he can't acknowledge how good it is right so, so that's no- a statement i agree so, with so you. for marty to acknowledge that this movie was good and he had nothing to do with it he wasn't a consultant oh. he wasn't a, it has to be the best movie ever made because Marty Friedman doesn't acknowledge anything. No, and and it's the same with the Lost <laughs> Symphony quote. It was like, oh well, but that one song that I worked on was pretty okay. Yeah, that, that <laughs> was pretty okay. Yeah, and we oh, love no, Marty. Listen, is- I love Marty Friedman, but man, he's a hard guy. Jeff Loomis, I tell this story, but Jeff Loomis did a song with him, and yeah. what when Marty sent back his version of the song. He took out ninety five percent of what <laughs> Jeff Loomis did, and when I play when Jeff listened to it, he goes. I knew he'd hate my parts. And then like continue to whip himself in the back, even though he's the greatest guitar player on the like, I he probably thought I tried to sound too much like him. That's literally what he said to me, and I felt so bad for Jeff. I'm like, meanwhile, I suck at guitar. And I'm like, Marty, I'm just gonna do what I want. I'm sorry. And Jeff is still sitting there like, I hope he likes it. He only used one solo. He was upset. He was literally upset. I'm like, I'm putting it all back in. Don't listen to Marty. I'm gonna no. do whatever I want. No. I love the guy. I, I have all of his records, and I'm a huge fan. And now it looks like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be managing him, so I'm excited about it. But this is a great case study because he is, you know, a tough case, but amazing musician. When someone like him calls oh. you up and says, you know, I, I need someone to manage me, or I want to start touring again, that's like that's a massive operation. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that strategy wise with an artist like Marty that's, you know, he's got a niche, he's got a a following, but he's been in another country. Like, how do you approach a project like that? Right, well, first of all, you have to ask yourself, what is, this is me talking to Marty, what do you hope to to achieve? Because you got to know what the playing field looks like. Money. Well, that, that, Money came in in as in not losing any. That, mm. that was where that came in. But I wanted to know what his um, uh, what he wants to achieve, what he wants to gain, what his hopes are for this. Because I need to know whether it's realistic, you know. So and he is. He's down to earth. He's realistic. He realizes his uh, appeal is limited because it's instrumental. Mm-hmm. He did try um, some vocals on some of his albums. Doesn't work. There's some guy barking all over it. It, it didn't <laughs> didn't work. So he realizes there's a niche there for that style of music. And so then we came up with the G3 idea of three guitar players. And then we realized we can do this. Then I found an agent that I believe would get in the trenches, and I looked for that agent. Then. I acquired the right publicist who I knew could open the doors to get his social media place in the right places, his interviews. And once I got the nucleus of, of how we start, we then went forward and we're now booking this. Yeah. So that's, that's where we are. And yeah. we're moving forward. And he trusts me, thank God, and he's leaving it in my hands. And I'm yes. putting it together. Well, let me ask you this: what What is the answer with instrumental music? Because I do, I agree. It's and that's something that we face with Lost Symphony. That's it's harder because you don't have vocals. People relate to the lyrics. I mean, how oh. do you approach marketing or growing a following with instrumental music? Let's say you. you I mean, you. To, if you really want to break out of that, you got to get a break, a lucky break. Like maybe it was it's used on a commercial. Maybe it can be. Um, used in some other way because the market isn't automatically going to just explode. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't. I mean, the shredding community is is quite small, but it's enough there to make a decent living and make money out of. You really can. Steve Vai, you know, there's a guy. Well, and- you, you just mentioned, I, I remember my first uh, knowledge of shred music was listening to um, The Extremist by Joe Satriani because it was in a Sony commercial. Mm-hmm. And everyone's dancing. 
It's like before Apple, it was Sony to uh, to Joe Satriani, and I had never heard him. And in he the was, corner, it said Joe Satriani, the extremist. And I remember that's what made yeah. me go that that guy, that bald guy, must be pretty good. He was uh, Steve Vai's teacher. Did you know that? I did know that. And Larry Lalonde, uh, Lalonde yeah. from Primus, Kirk Hammett. Yeah. Um, a bunch. There's a bunch of guys. Uh, the dude from um, Skolnick. Yeah, yeah, I studied with him. These guys were all on a record label called Shrapnel, I think it was called originally. Like like Jason Becker. Yeah, yeah. And Cacophony, which Mm -hmm. is Marty and Jason Becker. And so uh, to get back to your question, we we realize the, the limited appeal and we're going to play to that limited appeal. And whilst doing this, hope we get some break somewhere that we can break out somehow um, but you 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 got to start somewhere. So we're starting with the basic building blocks of touring, concerts, agents, publicists, and then video. Maybe you can't do a lyric video because no lyrics. But um, <laughs> uh, and then coming on shows like this, talking about it, doing interviews, doing as many um, YouTube style interviews as you can and publicizing the concerts. That's how we do it. And that's what we're going to do. And Speaking he wants well, to tour all over the world as well. I, I'm going to tell you what I think would be really cool as a fan. And I, and Marty and oh, I yeah. have gone on back and forth about this because as you could see, I'm holding a Jason Becker guitar, but it started Indeed. off as a, th- this, I have all three of Jason's guitars that went up to sale and it started off as an email to Marty. Actually, the whole reason the Jason Becker guitar sold is because Marty was working on Lost Symphony and I had told um, Scott, the guy who purchased these guitars, um, about Cacophony when we were working on The World Is Over. I said, if we get Jeff Loomis together and Marty Friedman, it'll be like a tribute to Jason Becker without Marty knowing. We we didn't tell Marty it was going to be a tribute. We just did it. And Scott, when it watched all the things about Jason Becker, and said, I have to help that guy. And messaged Marty directly and said, do you think that I could get these guitars? Like, would that be okay? And Marty actually wrote to Jason's family and said, I highly endorse Scott and Benny to be the guy, the gatekeepers of these guitars because you know, they're, they're real people. So Marty actually endorsed us to Jason's family getting uh, to, to be the gatekeepers to these guitars. So in doing so, I said, Marty, if you come back to the United States, Will you play these guitars? Because he played in Cacophony. And if he there's anybody that, sh- that should play all of Jason Becker's guitars, anyone oh. in the world, it should be Marty Friedman. And Marty also, and I have the email and I will send it to you, said, next time I come to Boston, Benny, I hope you'll come on stage with me. Now, I know he said this because he wants to make a fool of me because no. I'm terrible. Well, and, and, right. No, well, I, I said, listen, if you want to play Wagon Wheel, I'm in. I'm going to send Corey with a wig for me because uh, he's good. But I, I'm telling you this right now that if he's doing a tour, I have three of Jason's guitars. And if there's three of them playing, we should have Skolnick, who's already played one, mind you. Yeah. Maybe John Five and Marty play them. And we should make a video as a tribute for Jason. Because what I've said to everybody is it's one thing to give money to ALS uh, and uh, research and all that and to Jason, which we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars with these guitars for yeah. him. But what makes him happy is seeing people live on through his music. So I don't see anything cooler on the planet other than we had Nita Strauss, which you helped me do, um, which by the way, I know Jason's a huge fan of Nita, loves her. So he was beyond excited. We had Nita Strauss, um, the, you know, the hurricane play with a uh, school's out with Alice Cooper with this guitar. Um, I'd love to see those three guys when they come to Boston, play Jason's guitars, and I will bring them to the venue myself, and we'll string them however they want, and you tell them, because this will be news everywhere. You know this, I know this, it'll be on Blabbermouth, Metal Injection, Revolver, it'll be everywhere, because Jason Becker is the saint, the Mother Teresa. Our publicist will do this. Oh yes. This is what I'm talking about, and that that by using a publicist and knows what's going on, that's the sort of story we want. You know, and just and, so you know, this is the guitar that Eddie Van Halen played. This exact oh, guitar, the Eddie Van Halen, when he came to the house to help 
raise money for Jason yeah. back then um, and gave him a Wolfgang guitar um, that we also have in the, our possession. Um, so and he kissed his head. I remember. Yes, it. he kissed his head. But th- he played Mean Street uh, on this on this guitar. So I would love to see this go into the hands of Marty Friedman on stage and film it because I know knowing Jason just a little bit, not a lot, but enough to know that he would freak out watching John Five and Jason. Uh, I mean, and Marty and I know Skolnick playing at the same time on all of his oh, guitars. It hasn't happened. been done. Guys, it's going to happen. We'll, we'll, I think I'll let you have the dates as soon as I have them. October, November. All Amazing. Right? Yeah. So I I see, that'd be cool. I'm going to see you guys. Um, um, I'm in Boston. I get there on the 8th. So I'm there. I don't. I leave for Brazil on the 12th. So we need to get together. Nice. Well, All right. Not yeah. only do we need, do we need to get together, yeah. I was talking to Jim the director of the Les Paul documentary that we're doing that we obviously we're hopefully going to do the Joe Perry, Billy Gibbons stuff, but we all need to hang out and have a good hang um, sometime because Steve, you're in my, you're in our area and you got to come down to the guitar world down here. Ernie may have a mausoleum, but I got a guitar (laughs) vault. Well, listen, 22nd of July at the Boston Pavilion. So, Note that down. You're coming. And the twenty first, the twenty, the twenty first is also Hampton Beach Casino. Whatever you need, you've got. I'll be at both if you'll let me. No, of course I will. Do whatever. Corey, you're gonna come with me and watch some Joe Perry. The man that makes it happen. Yeah, let's let's do it. Consider it it done. Happened. (laughs) Um, Yeah, as I said, I'm in Boston all that time. So let's get together. Let's do it. I'd love that. And. It'd be so our honor, dude. We're we're ob- we you know we'd be Siobhan's gonna have to just leave the tour to come hang out for a day. Yeah, or two, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not around Boston. But well, it might not be possible for you, Siobhan. But there'll be other occasions. But anyway, open. We'll, we'll FaceTime you in. Thank so you. you don't miss yes, out. for sure. <laughs> but uh, so as we as we wrap up, we got we still got about ten minutes left in the episode. But Steve, obviously, you had a lot of things going on right now that, that you know you've told. A, told us about um, anything else that, that you're looking forward to, you know, in the future coming up, any other projects that we haven't discussed well, yet? Well, Godsmack, um, we're, we're sending them off to South America um, in November. We're, we're trying to coordinate that. Uh, they're doing Europe in October. And then 23 is going to be their year. The album You missed something. They're August 27th. They're opening up the new venue inside Fenway Park. I know because Shannon right. called me today to tell me, Betty, we're opening up the new venue at Fenway Park, August 27th. So I could tell you that, that that's right. a thing, isn't it? Yeah, so that that's happening. Um, they'll be touring everywhere in next year. Um, and um, my son's band will be out this year, like a storm. I will be Amazing. speaking to Jim about video. Do not worry. And... Um, the Hollywood vampires, you know, start r- ramping up in June of next year. I know it's a year, but it has to be that way because. What's it look Aaron- like, Han? I want to. I want to talk about this. So when they ramp up, do they go into let's say Alice Cooper's garage and plug into like their PV amps? Like, was it? Sh- <laughs> what is ramping up? I'll tell uh, you because okay. I'm putting it together. Okay. What it will take is probably two weeks at SIR on Sunset here, okay? We bring in our band and crew and we rehearse. It, it's a pretty big um, situation. What, but the tour is starting in Romania, which is in Europe. So we haven't played for a couple of years. So we'll play for like two, 10 days in SIR. Look. Like fold it all up, put it on a, a plane, and fly it to Germany. Once we get to Germany, we will go into another facility and quickly rehearse a touring setup and get it all perfect, and then go Germany into the first show. And then we're, we're touring, but a lot of it's festivals. So we've got a, a festival setup, and then we go into England. And I've rented an arena for a few days where we're going to do seven buses and God knows how many trucks. Uh, we're playing 18,000 seat buildings. And then 
we tour the, the whole of the UK. And it's all private jets. It's as big it's as all... it gets, in other words. Well, okay, so let me ask you this. So to- Tommy Henriksen, who's an incredible guitarist, super nice dude, um, you know, he plays in Alice Cooper's band. He's yeah. been... He's been promoted to a vampire. Does that mean he gets his own private jet and his own bus now? Like, no, or is there still a pecking no. order? It means he's on the on the album. I mean, on the poster. Look, it, it all happened. Johnny really believed that he needed. Um, he was so instrumental in helping the album to get finished that he wanted a piece, and he became a principal. And uh, now he's on the posters, and he'll have his own bus. If he wants it. Good for Tommy. All Good the, for Tommy. The, I got three crew buses and one bus for each principal. That's incredible. That's Good, the dream. Good for Tommy. I'm, I'm <laughs> and, really happy for him. And the jet, too. But the, a lot of the time, the, the buses just go to the airport to meet the jet and drive to a hotel. <laughs> I know it's kind of what I know. I, it's, it's another way of touring. But like, I know we're getting close to the end, but... One of the big financial upsides to that band is VIP meet and greet. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. People pay to meet those four guys. Is it going to be $10,000 like the Rolling Stones now, where even if you're Metallica, Mick Jagger won't even look at you as he walks by and signs? $1,500. $1,500. Stay. Which for that level of star power is, is reasonable. I mean. That's very reasonable. People, we, we cap it at 100 people a night. Yeah. It's a, That's a wild. big number at the end of a tour. Yeah. Holy shit. Do you make, so do you make more off of the VIP meet and greets than you actually make on ticket sales? It's, um... Uh, After not, expenses. It's close. It's close. It's, it's, listen, it's something we all used to do for free before. You know, the record company, you got to have a meet and greet with the radio station. Now, it's like, well, it's like merchandising. Right, it is, it is. Well, my brother always says, why do for free what you can be paid to do? And I I agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, totally like a Goodman. Like, you know, it's almost like our Jewish parents taught us fiscal responsibilities. Um, But that it's it's true. Uh, But do you also think the 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 other side of this is, do you think it forces bands that didn't before have to do meet and greets to do meet and greets to make more money because they can't make money as much on the other end. So now where they didn't worry about that 10 years ago, now it's an essential part of it's, making it's the, the bottom line happen. Thing. Nothing more than that. It's just another way to make money. Before it was just a thing to help the radio stations play you. But now it, it's just, it's another money idea. That's what it is. And, 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 and in the vampires, it's a big component. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Those jets aren't going to pay for themselves, so makes sense. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's wow. kind of amazing. This has been fun, guys. It's Steve. It's always a blast, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, so I, mean, great really, I don't know if you're around, Corey. I mean, in absolutely, like, absolutely. Well, we're, gonna, we're, we're doing this then. And I was going to say to you, I, I, I listen. I'm going to put a proposition out there as far as a logistic thing. When we had um, Gary Sharon and and Barry Goudreau and Pat Badger uh, at the last uh, the, the episode you're going to watch tonight for the Les Paul doc, we did it at Ernie's house because Ernie is like the Kevin oh, yeah. Bacon of this world. So I was thinking that if we did have Jimmy the Mayor come down and you could watch this episode because you could show yeah. it to them, um, maybe we do it at Ernie's because I know that Ernie, Joe Perry, and Billy Gibbons have both stayed there and hang out there, and I suspect they probably are already talking to Ernie because they're all it friends. Depends on their whatever they're uh, what they're doing because I don't just know putting what... it out there to the gods like yes. Rick yeah. yeah, don't ask, don't get. I agree. <laughs> right. Well, we can make we can make plans uh, offline and everything, yeah. but. Um, yeah. Steve, we all, we always appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories and everything. And uh, you know, oh. obviously, the stuff you have gone on is super exciting. So we'll have to check in again, you know, down the road and see yeah. how all the stuff comes together. We'll be keeping up with your journeys. I, I feel honored that you asked, and thank you. And uh, yeah, guys, right, if you haven't right. already watched Steve's previous episodes, we've had him on, you know, a couple times already. Go back into the archives at two zero two zero dash d dot com. Uh, stay tuned for all the tours and music well, that we talked about. I, I have to say this though before. It, <laughs> If you haven't listened, and I say, I, 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 well, I have to because yes. I, don't, I haven't been interjecting with my <laughs> crazy tirades at the end. We're holding you up. You might say end. it now. Well, 
if you haven't listened to Steve, because I understand he's not the dude from Breaking Benjamin. He's not the guy from Godsmack. You know, he's not even Paul Geary. The guy was an extreme. So I understand if you're just going through people and you're like, whatever, fuck this Steve guy. I don't know who he is. His episodes, and I'm going to go on record as saying this, they're the fucking best. And you want to know why they're the best? Because he tells you why Soundgarden broke up. He has no fear, zero fear, because Steve has no fucks left to give because if you don't know anything about him, <laughs> he he lived in the 60s. Again, nobody there. gave a f- nobody gave a fuck in London and he was into fashion and he he comes from a family. His father's uh, you know, a great ben, Don't mogul. give away the content no, of all the I'm previous episodes. This, so you no understand. <laughs> I know exactly no point in watching, right? But you have what to the go, answer is you have to go watch them because he the is the reason hole. all these people happen. He is yeah. the person putting them all up on stage at the end of the day, right? So right. Yes. But he's the not beginning. run out yet. He's still going. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I and love we, your episodes. Yes, as do I, as does Siobhan, as do I hope everyone listening right now. And we look forward to many more on 2020. <laughs> We're done now. See you guys next week. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 34, featuring Satchel of Steel Panther. Check it out. You know, like, being in Steel Panther, like, we chose we chose our path years ago. And our path was the opposite of political correctness, right? So it's always, it's always been... Um, We've also, we, we've always said fuck you to political correctness. And because of where we're at now, that has has made us, I think, very a lot stronger and are, we're political correctness uh, resistant. Who out there? Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!